Hey, this is Mark. We're broadcasting all week from the Vive event in Miami Beach. Vive is a new tech event focused on the business of health systems, and they've gathered a range of top stakeholders to address key issues in digital health, from interoperability to investing, and from the convergence of health data to how COVID has advanced consumerism in healthcare. And we're going to be bringing you interviews with a number of them. This week on the show, it's the top thought leaders shaping tech-enabled healthcare interspersed with insights from Vive. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. My guest now is Christopher McFadden. He's Managing Director at the PE firm KKR. And we're going to be speaking about post-pandemic private equity and the deal landscape in healthcare. We'll also get his take on the biggest tech leaps made by the health system during the pandemic. But first, some housekeeping items. Recruiting is now open for the next installment of Trend Talks, MMNM's invitation-only client-side roundtable. Network with peers, engage in lively discussion, and enjoy other perks of participation. The next Trend Talks is coming up March 23rd. If you're interested in joining, feel free to email me at mark.iskowitz at haymarketmedia.com. And also returning to the event slate for the third year is MMNM's 40 Under 40 program, which celebrates the wealth of accomplished young talent working in and around medical marketing. The live event is coming up March 24th. For ticket information, visit mmm40under40.com. And now back to our show. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Mark, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I know you uh, arrived uh, recently in Miami Beach. How are things going so far? I came in late last night, and I have to say having a, a, a casual dinner poolside on a warm evening in South Florida was a, was a really nice way to kick off my stay. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Welcome to Miami Beach. Okay, so uh, let's get started here. I wanted to get your take on the private equity landscape. Certainly, we, we've seen it become more of a force in Marcoms with a number of healthcare communications agency acquisitions over the last couple of years, a spate of them, uh, to be more precise. And broadly, we've heard of you know billions of dollars of dry powder, you know, waiting for investments uh, from the PE side. Um, last year, M and A in healthcare saw a, a deal value of four hundred forty billion dollars, which was a forty four percent increase from 2020 and certainly returning to pre-pandemic levels and for good reason you know um, the deal edge data book on uh, benchmarking private equity deals shows that deal performance uh, specifically IRRs internal rates of return were seen to be the highest in healthcare of any other sector so um, you know Chris what's what's the PE environment in healthcare look like from your perspective you know was there a slowdown during the pandemic and you know has it returned uh, to pre-pandemic levels from your where you're sitting yeah, no, it's a, a great question. And I think there was a slowdown that lasted about six weeks uh, in early 2020. And for the next 18 months or so, it's been a, a remarkably fast and active environment. And I think there's three things that have contributed most to that. You know, firstly, there were a lot of sectors of the economy, think hospitality, think consumer, that were not uninvestable, but particularly hard hit by COVID. And so I think you saw investors who reallocated their time time in their capital into a sector that felt more defensive uh, and less, less impacted by COVID as a general matter. Um, I think secondly, the 
fiscal environment, the monetary environment has been quite supportive. You know, cost of capital has been low. Um, availability of new private equity funds have been quite uh, generous. Uh, and it's been a, a good environment to be able to model out the sort of double digit returns that you know private equity firms are traditionally uh, looking for. I think the third thing, and this event I think helps to reflect that, there's a lot of really uh, important secular tailwinds in healthcare right now that are sort of hard to miss. Did Digitization uh, is certainly one of them. Consumerism is certainly one of them. And there's an interesting intersection between early stage innovators who are bringing disruptive technology and large, mature, well-established healthcare organizations who want um, some of that innovation embedded in their delivery models or their product portfolios. And so uh, that tends to create you know, a good deal-making environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. And, um, you know, the general consensus is that interest rates are probably headed up. But do you think that will dampen um, the sector at all? I think it's less about the cost of capital because, you know, we don't need to go well down the sort of monetary policy route. But, you know, even in the current environment, given sort of the inflationary pressure, the real cost of borrowed capital is still relatively modest. I think the more impactful impact or the more impactful factor on deal making may be availability of capital, you know, in one regard, um, both for syndicated markets and for private credit markets, um, there are really significant amounts of capital available. But, you know, those rely on um, the forecastability of businesses and things like these incredibly unfortunate events in the Ukraine um, and other factors make people a bit more hesitant. So, you know, I think that's the balancing place we're in at the moment. It's certainly been a slower deal making environment, at least in healthcare, year to date uh, 2020. Um, um, and you know, I think we'll have to see how the rest of the year plays itself out. Mm-hmm, sure. One main focus also has been uh, digital health. Uh, and we saw uh, record investment levels there last year as well. Um, certainly the fact that you're here at a health tech conference kind of shows your hand a bit. But what's, what's your take on all the digital health buzz? I think it's two things. First, digital health is a big umbrella of different strategies and technologies, everything from AI and and machine learning uh, through, you know, uh, patient outreach and uh, you know, web enablement all the way through telehealth, right? And what virtual health has meant uh, to the provider community. So I think first you have to think how wide a lens it is, but I think more importantly is each of those um, product categories touch and change how organizations think about delivering care or marketing their products, right? And so that's why um, there's a lot of enthusiasm. That's why there's a lot of investment capital. And I think we're just at the early stages of understanding understanding how our health system, how our big product marketers and product manufacturers going to continue to embed these tools in their um, go-to-market strategies. And I, and I think those are going to be bigger changes still over the horizon. Mm-hmm. Sure. As you mentioned, a lot of even incumbents want to have innovation uh, in their portfolios, and, and that's driving a, a lot of this. And I wanted to ask you what some of the areas you have your eye on. Uh, let, let's kind of touch on behavioral health first, because obviously uh, this was a sector that came into its own the last couple of years from an investment perspective. How has COVID changed the behavioral health market 
framework point of view? I think the behavioral health market was beginning to evolve pre-COVID. Um, I think certainly self-insured employers had come to a different understanding of how cost containment strategies and behavioral health were impacting medical spend as a general matter. Obviously, in the context of COVID, I'd say there's two really pronounced um, things you can observe. First of all, you know, um, stigma and the hesitancy to self-identify conditions and the willingness of people to come forward and seek care has increased dramatically. That's obviously a very healthy dynamic for any number of communities. At the same time, we've proven, I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt that virtual care is a great part of the toolkit to reach patients both on a um, urgent basis and on a long-term chronic basis. And it, we're never going to go back to a place again where people doubt the utility of uh, uh, virtual care in the behavioral health sector. Um, I think what's going to happen next, though, is how do we make sure we're getting patients timely access to high-quality care? It's still the case that in too many places uh, in this country, getting access to a mental health professional is measured in weeks, sometimes months. Uh, and obviously, for someone who's in a crisis, uh, that is a, a very disturbing uh, dynamic. And I think that's the part of the care delivery model that still needs uh, more attention. Sure, sure. And we'll talk about some of KKR's uh, specific investments in, in, a, in a moment or two, but um, wanted to ask you a, another kind of um, sector-related question, but maybe from a broader point of view in terms of value-based care. I think that was has been driving a lot of investment the last couple of years, and certainly in terms of the triple aim, you know, higher quality care for, for uh, more cost-effectively with higher patient satisfaction scores. Um, how has that evolved, sort of that that driver over the last couple of years? I think it's complicated, right? Because on one hand, um, you have a significant amount of investment spending, strategy, consolidation, which is all embedding in it the accelerating adoption of value-based care as a contracting mechanism, either between the government and providers or between the self-insured employers, health plans, and providers. Um, and I think that is uh, an appropriate uh, orientation for managers and investors. By the same token, when you look at actually the math, only about 5% of total insured Americans, both senior uh, and uh, employee-based, are in a fully capitated insured model. And that includes Medicare Advantage, which, of course, is one of the most successful examples of value-based care uh, you can provide. And so it's a complicated environment. I think um, it will continue to inform a, a lot of strategies. And that includes what's happening in provider consolidation, where clearly scale economies are a critical element to be able to uh, navigate, contract, and manage in a value-based environment. And so, um, you know, that will be something that I think defines the PE landscape for, you know, the next couple of years. Sure. We've seen a lot of the experimentation taking place in Medicare Advantage plans, especially, and then, you know, also the integrated health plans like Kaiser uh, and uh, uh, and so forth, um, experimenting with everything from rides and, and social determinants of health and really integrating that into um, you know electronic health records, um, making that more able to be prescribed, you know, right alongside medications, which is which is fantastic. Uh, but speaking of the consolidation of physician practice, which you mentioned as another driver, do you expect that to continue? And and how is that driving your investment theses? Yeah, I mean, I bet a week doesn't go by that we don't see an investment opportunity that's associated with 
dermatology, orthopedics, primary care, you name it, um, there are practices around the country who are thinking about how can I use investment capital to uh, grow my business, fortify my business, add new capabilities, invest in some of the tool sets that you, Mark, were just describing. And and so I think the most recent data that we saw suggested that 70% of physicians in America are either employed by a health system, uh, a health plan, or a corporate entity like private equity. That was January 2021 data. And I suspect, you know, when we roll that forward 12 months, it'll be, you know, in the mid 70s with corporate entities being the fastest growing uh, component of that, which again, comports directly to, you know, sort of our experience. And so I'm not saying there won't continue to be individual physician practices in America, there will be. Um, But I think there's a sea change that's going on, both driven by external factors, I think also driven by changes in the psychographic priorities of those physicians that are in residency or recently in practice that think differently about what they want out of their career. Do they want to be entrepreneurial physicians or would they prefer to be part of an institution like a Kaiser or Intermountain where the resources and the scale just makes the practice environment different and maybe the mission orientation different uh, than a prior generation? Mm-hmm. What do you think of some of the pushback recently on the you know, private equity investment in healthcare delivery? You know, I think, listen, I think there's always going to be a component of both uh, the healthcare provider community and the policy community that has a fundamental disagreement about for-profit medicine writ large, whether that's for-profit medicine as a public company, for-profit medicine as a private-owned business or the like. I, I think, though, the long, um, I think the longer view of healthcare is that, you know, those outside capital sources have made um, the ability to make significant investments in just the sort of infrastructure that helps improve access, improve outcomes, reduce costs, uh, and the like. Um, Are there bad actors? Uh, There's bad actors in for-profit medicine, there's bad actors in nonprofit medicine. That's human nature, uh, not profit incentive. And so, um, you know, certainly our institution holds ourselves and our portfolio companies to the highest standards of both you know, compliance and ethics. And, you know, I think uh, you know, the vast majority of private equity firms are doing the same thing. Our limited partners expect that of us. Uh, and so we think we can continue to be a very effective partner. Uh, to providers, uh, you know, for a long time, as you know, someone said to me early in my career, um, you know, no, no margin, no mission, and so you know, everyone in the provider landscape has to find a way uh, to move toward a more sustainable economic model, or else you're going to lose access. And certainly, what's happening in rural healthcare, for example, is a good example of you know where there's some real vulnerability there for those populations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, you know, a couple of the last year, actually, we had on, on the program uh, Google Cloud, uh, and they did a study on what were some of the biggest technological leaps uh, that were made in the healthcare system during the pandemic. I think it was fielded from Feb 2020 through June 2021, so really in the heart of the pandemic. And not surprisingly, telehealth really bubbled up. We wanted to get your take. What do you think uh, were some of the biggest technological leaps uh, made as, as the healthcare system reboots? Yeah. I mean, I think that is the most profound of the innovations. I mean, things like medical records, uh, patient uh, direct access uh, to point of service and the like has been around for a long time. And I think at a very uh, sort of uh, gradual and uh, and 
constructive adoption curve. But I think, you know, if we were having this conversation, Mark, in June of 2019, and you asked me about telehealth as a general matter, I think I would say, gosh, it feels like it will be important to healthcare, but I don't know how long it will take. It could take a decade. Right for providers and payers and regulators and state boards of medicine and all the other stakeholders that are around the table to really come to a shared consensus about is this a fourth modality right in healthcare? We think about inpatient care, we think about ambulatory care, we think about home-based care, and now we have this fourth modality, which is virtual care, which I think is now a permanent part of delivery models. Again, that could have been a conversation that lasted a long time. Instead, we had this unprecedented compression and need, and I think we come out the other side recognizing patients like it and it's convenient, providers like it because it's efficient and allows them to see their patient has clear benefits on quality of care in uh, a lot of sectors. And I think health plans um, have come to um, an understanding that it's not some loophole that's going to create excess utilization. In fact, it might be doing a lot of things to bend the curve, keeping folks on chronic uh, care regimens, for example, uh, better pre-surgical interventions, for example, more timely psychiatric care, for example, which all should be aligned to the quadruple aims that we started this conversation with. Sure, sure. Well, I know you're you're here partially to uh, moderate a talk on robotic surgery. Uh, is that is that an area that you have? your eye on? Listen, I'm fascinated uh, by the whole field, right, in two manners. One is just the way the technology has continued to evolve. Obviously, institutions like Intuitive Surgical have been for some time demonstrating powerful use cases, but I think other uh, very sophisticated global med tech companies like Johnson & Johnson, like Medtronic, like Stryker, are, are now uh, you know, making their own commitments to the area. Um, at the same time, you know, there's a lot of downstream implications that I think are important, right? What does it mean to access and cost of care? Um, what does it mean for physician licensing, right? When you think about the proficiency that these uh, technologies uh, bring to bear. So the conversation today with both uh, J&J and Intuitive Surgical Executive, I think is going to be a really thought-provoking conversation, not about product versus product, but about where does this technology take us in five, seven, and, and 10 years. And I think for our health system audience, um, I think it's going to be, you know, hopefully a very relevant uh, exchange. Okay. Well, I want to ask you, you know, what you've seen so far that you're going to take back to the office because you just got here today. Uh, but uh, we we'll, would like to ask you, what do you expect to get from the event? And, uh, you know, what are you hoping to, uh, to take back to the office? Yeah, thank you, Mark. I would say in my, you know, my 20 plus years of uh, being a healthcare investor, I've had the good fortune to come to dozens of events like this. And so um, what I try to really see is, you know, what's happening um, at the innovation level, particularly with some of the early stage companies. Because, uh, as I said earlier, while they may not have the reach or the capital or the, the brand presence to get the penetration that they want in the first instance, some of the most important and disruptive ideas often come from, you know, the folks that are on the periphery of the floor here. At the same time, you know, the bigger names that are in the center of the floor, um, you know, I think seeing how they're repurposing or repositioning their strategies and products tell you a lot about, you know, what's happening with the most sophisticated provider networks uh, in the country. This day, this event's about data. Uh, this event's about value. We're not talking about you know, traditional EMR or tech stacks. That says a lot about where the customer audience has evolved their uh, prioritization toward. 
Right, and and you mentioned the energy already, which you can feel yep. uh, already since since arriving. It's a, a certain buzz level. You think that's because of the fact that we're all kind of uh, a lot of pent up demand to, to to be live and in person, or is it or is it the sector of, of 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 tech and health data specifically? Or maybe it's the mojitos last night. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, I think there is a lot of there are a lot of folks who this may be their first in person event of this scale uh, since the pandemic. I had the good fortune to event the, attend the. HLTH event in Boston back in the late fall and a similar dynamic. And so I think that's yeah. a layer of it. Um, I do think uh, I do think there's a lot of um, enthusiasm for what's happening in digital health, Mark, for the, uh, per, for the uh, reasons we described uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, and I think they've really done a nice job of mixing large and small uh, venture and private equity. And so, you know, that dynamism, I think, also makes it uh, a really uh, must-see event. Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Christopher. Mark, thanks for having me. Enjoy the rest of the event. Thank you. You too. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.